I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. But we literally couldn't walk, a, you know, five steps without people stopping her to say, Val, you know, and it's just so great to see what's come about from it because they just want to hug or they just want to hear from her and, and tell her where they are in their career. And, you know, I was the only female line cook and, and she just gives them this little pep talk and they just love it. And so it's great to see she's got that effect. That is filmmaker Joanna James, whose new movie, A Fine Line, A Woman's Place is in the Kitchen, debuts this Friday, February 28th. Your side, you were just... I cooked all the time. I was doing doing more than I did in eight years at Union Pacific. I I was multitasking like crazy, literally cooking every day, working on cookbooks, eating... Part of getting healthy is cooking your own food. Yeah. Big part of it. Yes. Because uh, you can control I, Ironically, everything. I was cooking more after Union Pacific and Rocco's than I was when I was the chef of those restaurants. And that is Chef Rocco Despirito in part two of our conversation that began in last week's episode, discussing, among other things, his new book, Rocco's Keto Comfort Food Diet. They are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and I have to admit that I am recording this intro very much on the fly today. It's going to be very short, but my only alternative was to put off dropping this week's show when I usually drop it. We drop it at midnight on Friday morning, midnight between Thursday night and Friday morning. And I wanted to get it out on time this week, A, because I'm trying to be very diligent about that, And B, because one of our guests is filmmaker Joanna James, who has a new documentary called A Fine Line. Subtitle is A Woman's Place is in the Kitchen. And it's a movie that features a lot of chefs, I'm sure everyone listening knows, people like Barbara Lynch from Boston, television's Kat Cora, uh, Mashima Bailey from The Gray in Savannah, Georgia, who's been a guest on this show. Uh, April Bloomfield, Dominique Crenn, Lydia Bastianich, Elizabeth Faulkner. But what the movie is really about, in addition to the themes of what it's like to be a woman in the world of professional cooking and professional chefs, is Joanna's mom, whose name is Val James, who is a chef restaurateur. Joanna actually grew up watching her mom do all of that. And in addition to all the social commentary of the film, it's a wonderful biography and a very loving biography of Val James, which was a surprise to me. I did not realize that was going to be the case. It makes it very personal. It makes it very compelling. Joanna and I get into all of this in this interview, and the the movie is having its New York premiere on the day uh, that this podcast drops, again, February 28th, Friday, February 28th. 
It's at the Cinema Village in New York City this weekend and, and for a little bit. And uh, we talk in the interview that there are going to be some special guests at a lot of the screenings. Uh, I think some women that appear in the film. There is a website for the movie. It is a finelinemovie.com. I'll also have the link to that on the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. And I think that's all I'm going to say about it. Again, just because I am on the fly here and I do want to get this show out to all of you. So with no further ado... Here is Joanna James, who's just releasing her first film and her first documentary, A Fine Line. Here you go. I think people maybe who aren't that dialed in on it, who have only seen like the Instagram posts, might be surprised to learn what I think is the main focus of the movie actually is. What was the spark that started this project for you? It was to share my mother's story. The rest came later. Yes. So that's what I was getting at. Yeah. So can yeah. you? Ju- I mean, spoiler alert. <laughs> well, spoiler alert, because you see these. Uh, I, I'm not accusing you of like, like, uh, like non-truth in advertising, right? Because right. these people are in the movie. You do speak to a lot of the more prominent chefs, uh, not just in the U.S. but in the world. Mm-hmm. But the the bulk of this movie is the story of your mom Val, right? And her own personal struggles and successes mm-hmm. as a woman chef and restaurateur right. um, in a business where that's really hard. Yeah, exactly. It is yeah. the central narrative, the yeah. thread. Um, and that's what started just because I, you know, was sort of inspired by her story growing up mm-hmm. and admired what she went through. Um, but then I realized doing research after and looking more into it, you know, I was shocked at that statistic. Less than 7% of head chefs and restaurant owners are women. And I couldn't believe that because I was raised in the industry by her side and saw this, you know, magnanimous, awesome uh, woman boss, you know. So then when I started realizing what was going on, uh, that's when we decided to open it up and hear from these other incredible chefs and restaurateurs, like you said, Barbara Lynch and Dominique Crenn. Uh, uh, Kat Cora, you yeah. know, Elizabeth Faulkner, Mashana Bailey. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, it's great. And Arzak. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, April Bloomfield. I mm-hmm. mean, you got a lot of big... Was it hard to get them? Um, you know... Because you're, you're not from this no, not world at all. beyond your mom, who's right. not like a quote-unquote celebrity chef, right? right. So you, didn't, no. you grew up around the business, but you didn't grow up going to like no. the South Beach... Wine and Food Festival. Although like, we did take her. and oh, uh, big smile. And, oh, my God. It was like Where'd the first uh, time we took her to the Sobe, you know, uh, festival, Wine and Food Festival. And it was like spring break for chefs. Crazy, you oh, yeah. know. And it was one yeah. of like the early ones. So after that, we sort of would go back every once in a while. Oh, but, fun. But yeah, no, we weren't, you know. You weren't connected. No, definitely yeah. not. So how, was it hard to get these people to participate? My background is a newspaper reporter. Mm-hmm. So that was just, you know, so valuable for this whole process because this was my first film too um, but I got uh, the first person to sign on really was uh, Elizabeth Faulkner and then Barbara Lynch and um, and so I'm so grateful for for them because they really uh, number one every interview I kept learning and uh, and you know once you get one two then everyone else sort of falls in place right. too. And when you so. do your outreach, you're starting saying, we've already interviewed, yeah. and then you're legitimate right. in people's eyes. Right. Yeah. And then sort of by the last few big chefs, they don't want to not be on board in a way. Right. You know? Right. So. Yeah. 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 By the way, that's a good tip for any young uh, journalists, writers, producers out there. Mm-hmm. Get the get the get that one or two 
big names. Right. If they, if they're people you know you can get, go to them first. Yeah. Right. Don't go scattershot. Right. And then market that to the people you don't know mm-hmm. it makes a huge difference. Oh yeah, yeah. And we and after we had that footage, then I made a teaser. Uh, so it was a lot easier for people to understand where we where we were going with this, yeah. you know, and to see the vision of the film, um, and you know, so then they signed on. So for me, watching the movie, which I'll have said this in the intro, but I really enjoyed it. Thank I you. love your mom. Thank you. I love your. I followed her on Instagram this morning. Uh. <laughs> she doesn't have enough followers, guys. Start. I'm gonna. I'll mention this in the intro. <laughs> okay. She's only got like a thousand. You know, it's not a big number I for know. a movie star. Right. Right. Oh my god. And she feels like. It. I mean, after just coming from. Las Vegas, where it was an incredible sold-out audience. For your premiere. For our Las Vegas yeah. premiere, yeah, with the Women's Hospitality Initiative. Uh, but we literally couldn't walk, a, you know, five steps without people stopping her to say, Val, you know, and it's just so great to see what's come about from it because they just want to hug or they just want to hear from her and, and tell her where they are in their career. And, you know, I was the only female line cook and, and she just gives them this little pep talk and they just love it. And so it's great to see she's got that effect. I'll give like the quick sketch maybe sure, and then fill yeah. in what you'd like people to know, you know, without spoiling the whole thing, right? Okay. But but what I took from it was, you know, your mom, first of all, she's such a classic type. She's, she's I mean, you see her in the kitchen. She's no longer a young woman. You see her in the kitchen doing an interview as she's, you know, moving huge industrial Pots, pans, rondeaux, whatever, <laughs> around her stovetop. Yeah, that's as right. she's giving the interview, as she's calling out to to front of house and fellow people in the kitchen, <laughs> and and clearly has you know that gene that that some people have of multi being able to multitask. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really good in a kitchen. Mm-hmm. You also see in this film, I mean, largely through her recounting it, but there are all these stories. You, if you pay attention to this industry, that you hear. Over the years, you know, you'll hear someone like Mary Sue Milliken talk about not being able to get into a kitchen in Chicago in her formative days. Um, I vividly remember the person who taught me about this was um, Anita Lowe Mm -hmm. about, and I forget her name, the expert you have in the film, talking about capital. Uh, Kate Miller-Spence. Yeah, Kate Mm Miller-Spence makes the point that the biggest barrier for women in the industry is access to capital. Right. and your mom tells these heartbreaking stories of the when she had a big opportunity and literally just n- not even a sit down, not even a minute of a meeting right. at, a, at a bank. Right. Anita said to me years ago that she thinks a lot of people don't realize that they are behaving in a sexist way around the issue of money. Oh, that for sure. psychologically they find some other... Re- it's We're going... Not to get political, I don't mm-hmm. have a... I'm not... Sure, sure. Going there. But you see this in the presidential campaign, right? You see people who like certain women candidates, but don't, you know, but don't think they can win, right? You find, an, yeah. people find another way. Right. Or that, uh, I, I hate when I hear, oh, she's not likable. It's like, come on, you yeah. know, you would never say that about one of the guy candidates that isn't likable, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so it is, there's just this uh, bias, yeah. gender bias, yeah. and yeah. But your mom lived a lot of these narratives mm-hmm. that have been going on forever, right? Yeah. And And what's also, to me, was so compelling is, you know, most chefs in this world I kind of love that your mom, 
I haven't seen your mom interviewed 5,000 times. Right. You know, I haven't seen your mom on, on a cooking competition show. Mm-hmm. I don't see your mom on, well, I will now, but I don't see her on Instagram, mm-hmm. right? All, like, I'm not oversaturated with stuff about Val, yeah. right? Yeah. And, but that's most chefs in this world. Mm-hmm. Most chefs are not, you know, like the one percenter chefs right. that you see on television and magazines and yeah. websites, right? right? So the point to me was, I mean, just by the fact of who she is, it really kind of proved how prevalent all these issues are. Exactly. And, that, and that's especially what we're doing today from that. Because number one, as a newspaper reporter, the best stories I heard were from the unsung heroes. And you just never knew what someone was going through, either triumph, you know, triumphantly or just tragically, until you got to talk to them. And then it was like the greatest stories you could yeah. ever hear. And the same thing in this regard, I just felt like, she could speak towards a lot of these timely issues we're dealing with and in a way that didn't feel like it was hitting you over the head with just data or statistics or talking bites. It was her being real. And I think that's what everyone connects with my mother. She does not try to be politically correct. She says it how it is. She's not media trained. That's a great point. I didn't think of that, but that's another point. It is it's she's she's very clear about what she's trying to convey. Yes, but it it it's not these what I call these pull the string, you know, sound bites. Mm-hmm. You know, she is speaking truly in an extemporaneous yeah. way. Yeah, um, with not a lot of vanity. No, no. You know? I mean, she just she, she really. The other thing about her is she has such a big heart. Yeah, and you know, I also try to show that in the sense of. Because uh, I've always worked in the industry, even beyond my mother's restaurant, when I was at college or first moved to New York, bartending, serving. And some of the bosses I've worked for, I'm like, how can they treat their employees that way? Yeah. You know, and um, and so uh, and not only just obvious things of disrespect, but even just uh, knowing, you know, low pay that they were giving, paying some of these employees or if they were immigrants, you know, and I was just thinking my mother is like the complete opposite. And just because I think, I do think it's something to be said when you're a working mother and especially her, what she went through, everyone she has in her restaurant, she treats with such respect and appreciation. And I think that's why she's had so many employees for like, you know, 20, 15, 10 years. They stay that long. Yeah, they stay that long. Yeah. So you were a reporter, but now you're a filmmaker, right? Now, right. to me, the, the, the obvious transition from reporter to tell this story would have been, I'm going to write a book. Right. Right? Right. Why'd you go to filmmaking route? And what, did you have any background in it before doing this? Well, I went the filmmaking route because no one could tell my mother's story better than her. And so I had to get her on film to do that. There was no way I could write it. So on a gut um, level, in terms of media, she had to say it. You people needed to hear it from her yes. voice. Yes. So, um, and I didn't go to school for it. I had no experience or background whatsoever with film, other than when I went back for my uh, master's degree in international communication, because the newspaper industry was sort of going bankrupt when I should have been advancing in my career. Um, I would sit in on some film classes because I just love movies, mm-hmm. but. Um, but that was it. And then, uh, but being in New York City, I mean, it's like a, a playground for film and learning. And, you know, I was going to a lot of film festivals. And uh, one of the very first things that really helped me was meeting the right editor for this project, um, Russell Green. And uh, he had done uh, 
Nathan's Famous, I think it was. What's the hot dog brand? Yeah, famous Nathan's? Nathan's Famous. Okay, so he called, so the film is called Famous, uh, famous Nathan's. Okay. And, and, I, and I saw, I liked what he had done with that because it was very much about this family and this patriarch mm -hmm. of uh, the hot dog company. Mm -hmm. um, but it was about so much more. And I, so, you know, I met him, we talked, and, uh, and that was the beginning to this because I really learned through him. So we co-edited, I edited the film as well. And um, so it was a lot of learning on the go. Without getting into the specifics, names, numbers, whatever, but what about fundraising? Well, like you mentioned before, uh, it was really interesting, some of the um, introductions I was supposed to get to that, they saw a young woman, and it was like, wait a minute, I, you know I'm in this meeting for money, and yet it was like all of a sudden there was no discussion of money, you know? It was How like, would that be communicated to you? We had already gotten some, number one, I had uh, some seed money, that seed funding that I put into it to get mm -hmm. us going, and then it was a Kickstarter uh, campaign, which was great, because that really um, gave us the money to do the production. Got it. So a lot You of thank the your Kickstarter people in the credits. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and then after that point, we knew we needed a lot more for finishing, you know, mm -hmm. well for editing, number one, that's the most expensive, especially for documentary making is editing and then post-production. So sound finishing color, mm -hmm. all of that. And, um, this one very influential person, uh, who was friends with someone that I was friends with. So that's how I got the meeting. And he knew exactly what it was for, you know, to either introductions he could make to people who would be interested, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in investing or what have you. And it was like, um, there was none of that. Once we got there, we hardly talked about the film. And then I kept trying to bring up the film and yeah. why I was there. And he would just, you know, thwart the conversation. And then finally, I just sort of asked... Um, and he said, well, why don't you go back and see what you can get? And then I'll, I'll try to match it, try to figure it out. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I did it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how, but I, I did it. And then I went back and he was like, well, I don't even know now. It was such a surreal experience, but he basically just denied it. Yeah. And, and, and then when I told my friend what happened, he was like, well, did you ask for the introduction? Because it was in particular one person. And I was like, no. And I realized at that point that we as women also have to speak up, you know, and we have to be confident enough to just to go for it. And, you know, this is like five years ago now. So, and, what, um, what do you mean? You mean you feel like you were maybe a little too polite about the whole thing or a little too, I think a little too roundabout in, in getting to the, yeah, to the, I think I should have held him accountable, mm. you know, and I think I also should have just asked for some of these introductions that we all knew he had. And if I was there for financing, you know, it's not like I showed up with no, uh, context to this yeah. meeting. Yeah. So now looking back, you know, I know how I would have handled it differently. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, that's what this is all about, learning. What really made this film is women across the country yeah. who heard about what I was doing or we would reach out to sometimes and they would host uh, these little fundraising events, you know, get the wine, someone brought the wine, someone brought the food and we would show a little clip of what we were looking to finish um, and, you know, basically ticketed events mm -hmm. and then donations. And that's how we did it. And wow. um, so there was a lot of grassroots, but also that's what I think sort of extended the process. I mean, it took five years to make the film and get it out there. 
Um, but that was really incredible because now that it's finished and, you know, we're touring with it, I have these women that are just like... That you like met at a cocktail thing like oh, seven yeah, years ago yeah. and somewhere. And yeah. some of them are like my best groupies, you know, we yeah. see each other a lot and right. so it's great. That's great. Yeah. I was wondering about time frame because there is a person in the film, I don't think this is a huge spoiler, but a person in the film we learned passed away in 2015 so you had to, I mean, it was, I said, oh, this, had, this took a while. Mm-hmm. And I imagine with a lot of documentaries, I don't know if people understand this, there is often a lot of stopping and starting. Sometimes that's based on funds. Sometimes that's based on, you know, reality not moving to generate the scenes that you need for a full film mm-hmm. at the rate you would like it to, mm-hmm. right? Like there's some moments that we see that Escoffier dinner. Right, right. I don't know when that took place, but that was a great thing to see. Your your mom was kind of kind of coaches right. her staff, yeah. you know, because it was a big deal for the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was the time frame? You said about five years? Yeah, I mean, not fully making the film in five years, but getting it out and sort of the post-distribution, I guess. But um, Oh, we, so from beginning of filming to now? Yeah, well, oh. we started in late, late 2014, just sort of conceiving it, developing it, um, shooting in 2015, but then taking a break, like I said, because we had to raise more money. So we did the Kickstarter. And then most of the production was 2016. Um, And then in terms of editing, uh, again, because I had to constantly fundraise while we were making the movie. Yeah. you know, most of the editing was, and there was also some like double stages. So while we were shooting, I was also editing, like getting selects and seeing what I had to work with. Cause we also had so many chefs and yet my mother's story. So it was a matter of trying to figure out how to seamlessly bring that all together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which I, I really enjoyed that process of sort of editing and filming and then, you know, going back and like, um, almost like chiseling away at things, you know? Yeah. Uh, That's so funny. That's the verb I use yeah. about the editing. Pro- yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so, um, so yeah, we probably finished in 2007, um, the end of 2017, because we started the film festival circuit. But what happened was the Me Too movement broke and especially connected to uh, the culinary industry mm-hmm. with Mario Batali and Ken Friedman. Yeah. So, and that didn't sit right with me not to address that. And especially because uh, two of the chefs were directly associated mm-hmm. with them in the film. So, um, so we went back out to film and opened a locked picture, which as you can imagine is very uh, timely and costly, but I just, I couldn't imagine, you know, putting this film out there without addressing that. So, um, so we spoke to Angela Rayner and she was just so raw and authentic about what she went through and especially that it was so many years ago and yet it still just opened up the floodgates for her, which was really powerful to sit through that and see her, you know, sort of experience this live. And uh, so then we went back in and edited it in. So, you know, so basically that's why 2018, it was a matter of updating the film and, you know, and then here we are today. Okay. So today I'm sure you feel great about that decision. Were there ever moments where you're like, I mean, you're like, you know, you're about to open the starting gate, right? And then you go, you know what? My moral compass is telling me I got to do this. Were there ever times that we were like, I cannot believe I'm back (laughs) <laughs> I'm back like I you know I to you I never heard that term a locked picture but yeah. that I you know that you unlocked the picture that had to be surreal that you were back 
doing it. I mean, I mean, in a it's way, always it's always a risk like, with anything nonfiction. But yeah, yeah. But it was like I was so in it. You know, we yeah. were literally touring with the film, so I, I never felt apart from it. To like. Mm. Right, you know, so um, it was. Uh, I guess some of the part, some of the moments when it was like, "Really, I'm doing this again," is the editing part. Because yeah. you know, I remember literally, I was in Napa because I, it was I, maybe it wasn't the Napa Valley Film Festival. That was our first one of our first film festivals. It was something else that was going on in Napa. Yeah. And instead of getting to go to the wineries and enjoy this beautiful place that I love, yeah. I was literally in a bedroom just editing because I was on deadline and wanting, you know. So at that point, maybe I was like, "Man," but. At the same time, you know, it all worked out. It felt like you had no choice. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 I would agree. Because I did, early in the film, when I was seeing, we don't need to beat a dead horse with mm-hmm. the people who, you know, aren't the primary, or weren't the offenders, right? Right. But there were people in the film, and I was like, I wonder if when this wrapped. Like, yeah. I was thinking that as I was watching it. Like, right. are they going to be able to address this? Yeah. You make an interesting decision in this film. You're in the film. A couple of times we see you behind a camera, right. tripod. It's an over-the-shoulder shot from behind you looking at your mom. What, what was the... You're smiling big. This yeah, is the other big smile. It was but why a- did you decide to... That's an unusual decision mm-hmm. in a documentary. Why did you decide to show you in there with your mom? Well, when we were... Again, Russ and I discussing how to um, put in that perspective, you know, because I didn't, I sort of wanted it to be a surprise that the daughter is making this mm-hmm. film. But then we thought through all these scenarios and how it could backfire or not resonate. Yes. And so we decided let's do a beginning, middle, end. Yeah. And also, I had watched so many great docs at that, you know, at the very beginning to sort of get inspired and see what styles I liked and what worked and didn't work. And one of them was Alan Berliner. Um, I can't remember the name right now. Um, What's it about? Something like, uh, what do you think you know? Basically, it's a Jewish man who interviews his father. Mm. And this, and it's sort of a similar idea, I guess, in a way, where his father's just this loud, bombastic guy, but yeah. awesome, like a heart-rendering guy, but not so sensitive or nice. Yeah. And, um, at the, and the filmmaker, the, one of the shots is him behind the camera talking to his dad. And, um, and there was something about that that just clicked with me that I was like, oh, I like that. I yeah. like that here's this man talking to his mm-hmm. son who's making the film about him, and he's giving him grief. Why are you making this film? Um, so, so you got a little pull. You got a, like a pinch from that. Yeah. You, that, that, on a, just, yeah. Yeah. This is all – it's so interesting. I think you and I think about things in similar ways creatively because I really – I have that – that happens, I think, to any a lot of people who write or do, do make movies, mm-hmm. whatever, where – there's just something you like that you've seen. It's just yeah. a vibe or an element of something. Right. And I think you just have to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of other really cool creative moves that I would have done if I had the budget to do. But that's the thing as a an artist, I guess, is not what you want to do in this grand world if you yeah. had all the means. It's what yeah. you can do and pull off. Would and those have been things about your mom or would those have been things about... Um, kind of the history of this issue, these issue, issues that you address in the movie? Actually, it was more with my mom because it was how to capture a lot of her backstory. Mm. Um, and so at the time, too, maybe like two, three years ago, there was uh, this uh, moment with uh, documentary making that I think there was docs that felt they were on the line of whether they're real or not. Um, you know, you could have watched this doc and thought, 
did I just watch a narrative, like a scripted, or was that a documentary? And I really loved that, like playing with that. Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, if I had a top-notch budget, which this was like almost like a shoestring budget, um, I would have done some of that, you know, almost like some – Acting, if you will, uh-huh, sure. you know, reenactments. Yeah, yeah, but but like in a way that then it had effects on it, so right. you it almost felt like dreamlike. Yeah. Um, so a good example of this, if people saw, say, the Jinx on HBO, the the Robert Durst, the yeah. crazy Robert Durst movie. I didn't see it, but but there are there's actual I think shots. It looks almost like flashbacks you'd see in like a David Fincher movie. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So there's shots that are actually like old super eight home movies yeah. right and yeah. then but mixed in yes and they do I these things that. you talk about like yeah. oversaturating the image yes. and 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 these little make it a little jumpy so mm-hmm. you're it looks like something going through a projector yeah 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 but that's the kind of thing you mean yeah that yeah. also animation animation yeah. is something that to do it well you have to spend a lot of money yeah. or else it looks really kitschy yeah and i literally met with someone who's incredible she was oscar nominated mm-hmm. like beautiful, elegant, like just so great. And it literally would have cost 20000 for like six seconds. Yeah. So, you know, I couldn't do that, unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. But I'm really, but that being said, even dealing with all that, um, I'm really happy with how we were able to just stick to good old-fashioned storytelling and like yeah. keep it going yes. and not use all those tools. Because I think that made me as a filmmaker get to really um, hone in my skills in the mm-hmm. storytelling part. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'd love to now, you know, for my next project, get to, like, experiment a little more. Cool. Yeah. I'm going to wade into a slight, I don't know if it's a touchy subject, but I have a question I want to ask. Sure. Um, I'm going to say as little as possible as I ask it because of the demographic that I fit. Okay. I was struck that a lot of the people who came to your mom's assistance, right, or backed your mom, are guys. Yeah, yeah. Now, I say this at a time where I feel like there's so much, at least on social media, I don't actually experience this in real life, right? Mm-hmm. But it's totally acceptable now for someone to just be on Twitter and say, you know, I'm just sick of white men. Oh, jeez. Oh, and I, I was watching this film and I thought, not everyone's the enemy. Right, exactly. You know, these people clearly respected your yes. mom tremendously. Some of them because right. they had seen her at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they were the people probably still overwhelmingly, but certainly when she needed it, who were the ones who could give you a loan, Yeah, yeah. Uh, who were the ones who could give you a hot tip on a good restaurant space. Right, right. I mean, these are the people who were your mom's kind of uh, su- supporters and, and collaborators. Yeah, yeah. No, I There's get that question. There's a fireman who helps with construction. She's, you know, she's talking about all the people who come to build out the space yeah. for free. Right, right. And you see a fireman. A policeman. A policeman. Yeah, a plumber. So this just yeah. struck me at a time where I feel like there's so so many people are kind of like, I think in a weird way, choosing up sides where it's not that universal mm-hmm. that it just struck me. It well, th- really struck me. And it struck me how these people were talking. Because you see them, uh, at least one of them, mm-hmm. With your mom. I don't think we see the banker in the frame with your mom. I think you just see him at a desk. Exactly, yeah. But what was it, Erickson, the real estate Uh, guy? We see them sitting on a couch together. Right, right. And, I mean, it's really touching. Yeah, and that's what I think is resonating with people who watch this film. Like you said, it's universal. Yes, we get into, obviously, issues of uh, gender equality and what's happening, you know, in terms of uh, issues of uh, the pay gap and uh, why don't we have affordable, accessible childcare yes. and paid family leave and some of these issues. 
But on the other hand, we want to put this out in a way that everyone wants to be part of the solution, you know. And so especially now, and we can get into the MAP impact campaign we created yeah, based on that. the film. Yep, yep. But for us, it really is wanting to have these conversations with men and men to be part of this, to embrace it. Uh, like Michael Anthony, actually, early on, yeah. he sort of asked in a similar way, like, you know, I don't know if I should or could, but I want to be part of this. Like, I want to help and play a role, but I don't know if that's um, disingenuous for the woman to feel like, well, why are you getting involved? You're a man. And I'm like, no, that's exactly why you do need to be involved, you know? So, um, and I, and like you pointed out, in my mother's story, she had so many, um, she called them her cheerleaders, and it was a lot of, like, older white men. Right, that's the other thing. Generationally, this is not the woke generation. No, not These at all. These are, like, our are yours and my like yeah. um, and some of them I I do like not agree with age. at all politically I'm sure but they're yeah. like they were big uh, help to my mother yes. and I think that's what we need more of today to not always look at it, everything like what are you about what is your um, you know stance on this issue this issue who cares who are you as a person what's yeah. your heart about and what do you want to do to help humanity yeah and if you're willing to do the right thing in those situations then let's have a conversation yeah um, and that's what my mother's about you know and yeah. I think that's what we wanted to capture too that it's not about all the you know like like everyone's finally hopefully talking about this canceling out thing where you you don't even take into perspective what someone else is about and i just think that's not going to help us yeah you know for any of these issues we're yeah. talking about and i will say you know now moving forward it it's hugely important to consider diversity and inclusion and we do at every event you know we will not have a panel that does not have at least everyone you can imagine, you know, like represent what the world really is out there. Mm -hmm. I would never, ever have a panel that's like five white women mm -hmm. or, you know, obviously we don't really do a panel that's all men. We, yeah, that's just not our thing. Odd. But even like to just have five white women, why would we do that, you yeah. know? And so that we really do take that into consideration because we want to show our motto is if you see it, you can be it. So um, we think it's really important to spotlight talent and to especially show people of color, LGBTQ mm -hmm, community, mm -hmm. you know, and so um, so that's important for us. But yeah. we also come at it that let's all talk about things. Let's all, you know, unite as opposed to always having to point out someone's the bad guy. Right. You We're know? different. I want to talk about MAP. Okay. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, what did you learn about, I mean, you saw your mom, you saw her struggles, mm -hmm. right? Um, what did you learn in the interviews for this film, whether or not they made it the final cut, what did you learn about these topics that you address that maybe you didn't know or that you didn't know were as um, prevalent or as um, awful <laughs> as they are, if anything? Maybe you totally got all this just from growing up around the industry. No, I learned so much um, making this film. And the reason being, in large part, because when I started making the film, I became a mother. So mm. I became a working mother. And everything my mother went through that I thought I knew all about, because she was very candid with us growing up, you know, she really would open up to me, which was great, because I got to learn from her, you know, in that regard. But also now to come at it from a lens of having a supportive husband by my side, you know, who's my ally, who believes in me, sometimes when I don't even believe in myself, and to think she didn't have that. And to think not only she didn't have that support system, 
but she also went through these systematic barriers. Um, and that's what I realized, how, you know, a lot of these uh, issues that we're going to talk about are things that women have gone through, and especially more so 30, 20, even, you know, 10 years ago. And so I say we really stand on their shoulders because as much as we're going through a lot of the same issues, whether it's the pay gap, access to capital, media coverage, they went through it so much worse. And, and you know, and to think here they are successful, um, you know, that's why it's just so important, I think, to really to spotlight them, to hear from them, to learn mm -hmm. from them. Um, and I, I learned from my mom that, number one, you have to do what you love. You know, and I think as women, we really do have to build ourselves up because at every shot, someone's going to try to knock you down. And so if you don't have that confidence and strength, you're never going to make it. You know, I got so many no's before I ever got a yes. I always say this um, because I never would have finished this film if I either didn't think I'm just going to do it. Somehow mm -hmm. I'm just going to do it. So you just have to really believe in yourself, too. And that's something my mother really did you know it, mm -hmm. for her it was a matter of uh, survival because she didn't have anyone by her side and she had two kids and she also was supporting her parents so um for her it wasn't a matter of just oh i believe in myself yeah. to feel good like no i have to or else where the hell am i gonna yeah. you know go yeah. um but that that attitude is so needed you know it's funny i you mentioned certain things uh uh that people are starting to come around to, right? Like the, the topic, as you mentioned a second ago, of, of like having the nursing room, right? Or yes, area in right. a restaurant. Now, yeah. I know, because they're friends of mine, and I've known them a long time, that there are people listening to this who are like, you know what? Not Why does everyone have to be able to do everything, right? Like, you know, and, and people have said forever, one of the reasons why there's fewer women in the restaurant business is... Um, well, they've for, they've said things like you know it's a dirty business. It's oh, physical. let's take this on. Let's it's let's go this. there. But but what I was going to say is, um, and I will put the link to it. It's episode thirty something, I think. But Mary Sue Milliken was on this show two mm -hmm. years ago, mm -hmm. and we had this conversation, and it was a real light bulb moment for me because um, you know we had this conversation of what if instead of generally speaking, human history was a matriarchy right. instead of a patriarchy, right? Yeah. So like, you know, the, all these constructs of this business and others, they were created by men that, you know, for the most part, men were bred, for the most part, yeah. men went to work, women were home with kids. Right. That, that's how this all was set up, right? Yeah. But that doesn't make it okay. It doesn't right. make it right, you know? And if you right. just take five seconds to imagine yeah. that um, what if... And it was flipped. What if until 30, 40, 50 years ago, mm -hmm. the men were the ones who were home for whatever reason, and, and women went, were the ones who were the business, right? Well, there would have been nursing state. There would have been a fact of life. It just would have been. Well, there wouldn't Maternity be gender leave. inequality because men could never stay home, you know, uh, every day changing diapers and, and doing all that. It just, you'd go crazy. Like, I literally say that. You know, when you read certain books like um, Betty Friedman, uh, oh, God, I'm blanking on the name now of the book, but, um, you know. Feminine Mystique? Yes, Feminine Mystique. Yeah. And, 
you really depict like those that era of the 40s and yeah, 50s yeah, yeah. and it it what it comes down to for me is like you just have to live your purpose and truth and it's not fair that a woman couldn't be able to do what she loved because she is forced to choose between having kids or having a career right. or you know you can't do what you love because you have to raise the kids and it's like i love my children i have three kids i absolutely adore them but if i was told you cannot make movies, you cannot write, you cannot do anything you love, I would be the most miserable mother ever. Yeah. And they are the best kids in the world. But yeah. that's not, you know what I mean? And so I think we have to get out of this mindset of like exactly what you said, that men are the breadwinner and women need to raise the kids. Or make that choice. Or make that choice. Yeah. And And that's why the way things are constructed today does not work for men either, in all honesty. Because what you have happening is men who don't want to work 70 hours a week, they want to have a life, they want to feel connected to their families, to their kids. Balance. Yeah. yeah. But it's almost, you know, just not possible because there is no paid family leave. There is no affordable, accessible childcare. So when uh, a family has to make that hard decision, we can't afford daycare anymore, who's going to stop working? Yeah. Usually the woman. Yeah. So then the man is forced to continue to work crazy hours. Yeah. And a marriage sometimes gets you know unhappy. You have a skyrocketing divorce rate. All of these things are connected. So mm. until... The the U.S. government realizes what are our our values as a country. Mm -hmm. Let's actually stand for what they are and provide some of this legislation. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to have a lot of either miserable marriages right. or women who are you know continuously forced to make that hard decision of a family or not. Because the truth is, the leadership disparity of women in leadership is across any industry. Sure. Even nursing, that is 93% female driven. When you get into hospital administration, CEOs, CFOs, it tanks right back down to 10%. Mm -hmm. So, and the same thing if you want to bring up the fashion industry or, you know, all these industries that are pretty much woman driven. When it comes to who's in the C-suite, who's in the executive positions, it's not the woman. And so that's why we decided to create MAP which is to increase women in leadership and to do it through mentorship and advocacy and for a lot of these issues that we think are going to change uh, this structure to make it a lot more of an equal level playing field. Mm -hmm. That's all it's about, just making equal opportunity. Yeah. Um, so tell people what MAP, you just gave the first one. M, yeah, so mentorship. But mentorship. What does MAP stand for? Um, M is mentorship. A is affordable, accessible childcare. And like, for instance, in New York, uh, pre-K has passed. Mm -hmm. So that's universal child. Uh, I mean, universal uh, education for children. And and there's a direct correlation that where that is offered, more women are in the workforce. Um, and then paid family leave advocacy, because we do think that's the first step. Uh, only seven states, actually now eight, um, have passed paid family leave. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, that's it. And the U.S. is the only industrialized country that doesn't have it. And the reason it means so much to this industry, when you have small business that is at an all-time uh, labor crunch. It's so hard to, you know, any uh, chef, restaurateur, employer says their biggest challenge is finding help and then retaining that talent. Mm -hmm. And small business, if you have a head server or line cook who now is going to have a baby, you don't want to lose them. 
but can you afford to pay out of pocket to pay someone to stay home and raise their baby and mm -hmm. bond and get strong to come back to work after a few months? Not really. Yeah. So that's why this country needs to pass paid family leave so that it becomes something that the employer can do the right thing, keep the help that they have, that they love, that they want there. Um, but not have to pay out of pocket. Yeah. And the and so we advocate for the Family Act because we think that's so necessary. It helps the employer and small business, but it also um, is doing right by the workers. Mm -hmm. And only 19% of employees nationwide get that benefit today. Right. Um, and a lot of big business actually implement this. So, you know, it's such a nonpartisan thing. It's crazy to me that it hasn't been passed because it, it really is like businesses who get the bottom line get they need to offer this. So we just need to pass this already. But um, And the last P for us is the power to live your truth and influence change. So when we do these screening events, that's part of MAP because we, we go into cities nationwide and we say, okay, who's the leading talent there? Who's doing great things, but they're not necessarily James Beard award winning or nominated chefs. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have all the press and recognition, but anyone in that city knows who these people are because they love their community. They're there as pillars of their community. They've been working so hard. And that's usually the case. You know, women are so busy working so hard, trying to prove themselves and have to do double, triple the work that they don't have time to hire a publicist or to think about or what, money or money, of course, <laughs> yeah. or money or to think like, what am I doing for press or PR? Yeah. No, they're like working the job. Yes. So we come in and we say, we just want to honor you. You know, we yeah. just want to say kudos to you. you you've done amazing. Mm -hmm. And it is awesome to see a couple hundred people there from their community just pay tribute to them. It's great. And and so that's that's what we do. Well, what's so it's all great. What's so fascinating to me is you talked about, you know, they don't get the awards, they don't get There's a whole class of chef in New York City who are known. They get they get press, mm -hmm. you know, they get covered. Mm -hmm. They don't get the they don't get the awards. They mm -hmm. don't get nominated. They're just not seen they're not part of that club. Right. They don't whatever. And um, I don't even know if the people who do get all that stuff realize that I mean, these are people they see at events and whatnot, you mm -hmm. know, go to each other's restaurants. But there's a lot of resentment among, because a lot of them can't quite figure out how it got, dis who, how this all got sorted out, yeah. <laughs> like why they're not. Because they're getting great reviews and right. they get coverage and people like them and, yeah. you know, but for some reason they're not the ones that get, um, I don't know. And this I breaks across, this either. breaks across all demographic yeah, lines, you totally, know, yeah. but, but, but you go outside the quote unquote a markets right? and it's, I mean, it's exponentially. It's like I say, that's what was so appealing to me about your mom and as a, I don't want to put it this way because it started as her story, but your mom is kind of a vehicle for all this uh, yeah. is that she's not. You know she's not out there as, you know, she's not using this as a marketing thing. She's not, like I said, she's not polished. Right. I don't, she's perfectly well-spoken, but she's not polished to the point of artif being artificial, yes. right? Yeah. And that's what, to me, I didn't, having seen just what I saw, mm -hmm. you know, in flashes, the way we see things now, mm -hmm. I was not expecting that. I didn't realize that the chefs I knew were only a, part of the film, mm -hmm. you know, almost like a Greek, no pun intended, because of your background. <laughs> yeah. But they're like the Greek chorus. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> These chefs add so much great perspective to the film because, yeah. you know, like I loved getting to hear how Lydia Bastianich started because yes. she's such a huge known name, you yeah. know, and um, 
and what she does, you know, all her shows on PBS and everything. It's just incredible to think how she started. And one of the quotes I love from her, she says, you know, I went to the pediatrician. There was no psychologist back then. And, you know, we have the lines memorized. But she basically was saying she just had her baby, but she loves her work. She wants to go back to work. What do I do? And the pediatrician said, kids need happy parents. Make it work. And so, you know, you hear some of those nuggets from these um, or Sylvia Weinstock, who's just like a firecracker, and she's ninety years young. I don't you know. think I'd ever heard her speak until your movie. Oh, I'm like, she's I'm, great. I'm smitten with her. Yeah, no, I everyone just, she's, loves what Sylvia. What a great person. I mean, yeah. her every, and also just the combination of her voice and the glasses yes. and like the whole package is right. just so. Right. She's like a movie character. Yeah. And she's literally getting licensing deals for her cakes in Dubai and China uh, now. Yeah. Like you know, so. Yeah, there was just such motivation and encouragement from these women, and they do just add this great layer and texture to my mother's, you know, story as well. So, yeah. so how can people? We're, this is shows dropping on the twenty eighth. Yes. So, so how can how and where mm-hmm. uh, that you know of now? Because these things are always you know growing with documentaries, right? But how and for how long and where can people see your film? And what's the best way to find out about it? So right now we're uh, having our New York City theatrical premiere uh, on February 28th. And for the whole weekend, we've lined up some great programming. So there'll be panels every night after the uh, screening. Um, We are going to honor, again, women chefs in the New York area. Um, So please come out. And it's at Cinema Village. So you just go to Cinema Village. You can get your tickets. All the screenings are at Cinema Village. All the screen. uh, Yeah. And then right after that, uh, we're actually going to D.C., um, at the Capitol uh, to advocate for the issues that we're talking about. Um, so that's not really open to the public, but we're excited about this big, um, you know, moment we have to try mm-hmm. to to try to show. Uh, what this community, this industry is all about. Yeah. Um, and then it's gearing up for our big um, PBS national broadcast premiere uh, for Women's History Month in March. So if you go on to PBS and check your local listings, you'll see when it's going to air. Like for New York, uh, for WNET, it's going to air, I believe it's March 13th. I should know this. Um, but yeah, so you can okay. just go on. So for people listening on the episode page, for this show, for today's episode on andrewtalkstochefs.com, I will put links to everything Thank you. Uh, that Joanna just ran down. So you, at the bottom of the description, you'll see all the links for this. And those also appear on our Apple podcast listing for the episode, the links do. So that'll be good. Can I just ask you, you've got three kids. Mm-hmm. You've got this movie mm-hmm. and the promotion, the map effort. Mm-hmm. You, t- you made reference to another movie. Do you have a staff? Do you have, what's, is there a team? I have. I mean, I know you. A really dedicated, high energy, bare knuckles team. Um, I have uh, a couple women that work with me that are amazing. But I I don't get much sleep because I have the baby. So, Mm -hmm. uh, and I just have a lot of energy and I love what I do. It's not work. So, yeah. And like uh, the other thing with MAP, I should point out, we just got Sarah Beth to commit. So Sarah Beth is going to be a mentor to April Anderson out of Detroit. And we're going to fly her here, put her up for a couple days, and she's going to expand her knowledge for baking. And she really wanted to get in a vegan, uh, more vegan baking. So those are the things that excite me, you know, and then we have Jasmine Norton out of Baltimore, who's going to be matched up with Barbara Lynch, um, because Jasmine Norton is the first African American and first woman owned 
oyster bar in the whole state of Maryland. And so we paired her up with Barbara Lynch. So these are the things that are just so great because we see what can happen from that type of, uh, you know, partnership yeah. and mentorship. Great. So, yeah. All right. Is there anything else you want? Is there anything I didn't ask you? No, it was great. Thank okay. you so much. I'm so glad this what worked out. What a great out. conversation. Thank you. I should say, this is a small, I mean, you're in the midst of launching your movie. Yes. I tracked you down a couple of days ago. <laughs> and by the way, for anyone listening who is wondering why part two of Rocco de Spirito is following this interview instead of an interview with a woman, it's because Rocco was already on the schedule, had a, has a book coming out, so that's the timing, and we just were able to swing this kind of uh, on the fly. Okay. This is great. Thank Good you to meet so you. Much. Congratulations on the movie. Good to meet you too. Thank you. My theme song and break music is from After School Specials album Double Barrel Single Entendre, which is available on iTunes. Again, for more information on the movie A Fine Line, you can visit afinelinemovie.com. I also have links to that website on the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com, as well as links for more information about MAP, the initiative that Joanna's been spearheading. And uh, I hope you see the movie, and I hope you support these causes. Also, I did not do it at the top of the show. I need to thank Danny Abrams and the team at the Mermaid Inn in New York City, for hosting that conversation with Joanna. Okay, our next guest today is Rocco Despirito. This is part two of a conversation that a lot of people listened to last week. I know a lot of you listened because I heard from a lot of people who really enjoyed the interview, found it a little bit revelatory. Uh, in part two, which I'm about to share, uh, we talk about how Rocco got from this you know, very popular New York City restaurant chef to someone who was much more focused on healthful eating, fitness, made that the focus of most of what he put out into the world until he returned to the New York City dining scene last year at the Standard, uh, at the High Line in New York City. And as you'll hear in this interview, Rocco is not done with the restaurant business. He's, he's got the, the scent back. He wants to be back in the game. He also has a new cookbook that just came out. And the name of that cookbook is Rocco's Keto Comfort Food Diet. We talk about that in the interview, but just to put it out there, it's a, he's created using this knowledge he has amassed over the years, a cookbook that is loaded with things that one would not think you could eat on a keto diet or at anything that would be called a diet and uh, ways to meet cravings and and kind of satisfy that comfort food urge that we all have at some point. And uh, it's kind of interesting how he got there, and we get into a little bit of the science behind it, but we also spend quite a bit of time talking about his years doing triathlons and things like that. So with all of that, I am now going to kick it over to my conversation, part two, with Rocco Despirito. I hope you enjoy it. This is the longest gap I think I've ever had between part one and part two of an interview. It's like a is year. Is it close to a year? It's like a year. No, it's like yeah. a year and a half. A year and a half. It's wow. like a year and a half. Yeah. But here we are. You know, what I what I thought would be interesting is part one, we went basically up to Union Pacific, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And you and I, I don't know why, we kind of were 
we'd see each other around, but we weren't really in touch in the same way we were before that and, and are now a little mm-hmm, more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually you start gravitating toward this, what did you call yourself in the blurb you gave me from a healthy lifestyle crusader? <laughs> healthy lifestyle crusader, yeah. Okay. Now, that's, what, that's the ambitious version of me and then, you no, know, health advocate is sort of what I kind of do day in and day out. Yeah. yeah. So, but but I feel yeah. like but I what I feel like from where I was sitting, right, mm-hmm. is you know, you you had this really hot restaurant in New York. Mm-hmm. Then you did, you know, a lot of other stuff, mm-hmm. right? And then the smoke kind of as the smoke cleared, mm-hmm. all of a sudden what emerged out of that was this other Rocco, right, mm-hmm. with this new focus. Yeah. How did that happen? How gradual was it? And and was there like a lightning bolt moment where where you decided that was going to be sort of a real thrust of the? Because even when you came back last year to the restaurant scene, and a lot of I think people who didn't read reviews or weren't briefed by their waiter didn't realize this. Mm-hmm. But even that food, you were serving, you know, you had healthy crisps. I forget what you yeah, call no, them. Yeah, I had plant, a lot of plant-based food. Plant-based food, a lot, food, of, a lot of oil dishes, instead of, of butter. Uh, I don't yep. want to say who. Yep. There was one review that talked about uh, pomme puree yes. that was laden with butter, right? <laughs> now, I knew because we had talked, there was no butter in that potato puree. Right. We, right? we ended up all, having to make oil. one without, yeah. yeah. It was olive oil. Yeah. yeah. So olive oil and garlic confit. Uh, how so did you, what you, was You said, was there an illuminating moment and was it gradual? Sort of both. Um, after the restaurant and the sale of Union Pacific, I just assumed because this is the way our careers typically go, especially back in the early noughts, that I'd be in a restaurant within a year or two and, you know, I'd start something new. And, mm-hmm. um, then, uh, this confluence of events occurred that were completely unexpected and so far out of the sort of normal routine of my life. I was asked to be on The Biggest Loser by the producer who produced the restaurant, so Ben Silverman. Mm-hmm. I'm producing this show. We're going to help people lose weight. It would be really great if you can come on. And you know what they don't know is they don't know how to cook. Can you come on and just show them how to cook healthy food? Yeah. So I had, I, so I had to do that, and I started to figure out what healthy food was, right? And so back then, it was simply eliminating some carbs, eliminating some calories. It was pretty simple stuff. So Dr. Duke, one of the most important figures in my adult life, is my chiropractor. Mm-hmm. And he uh, asked me to help him with a charity, a local charity in his neighborhood. And I know he lives upstate in Westchester. And I said, you know, of course, for you, Dr. Duke, I, you know, I'd slay a dragon. I'd do anything for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the guy who's responsible for me standing upright. You know, <laughs> without him... I don't know that I could have cooked another year, much less 20 years. Because? Because I have scoliosis and a flat feet and uneven hips and this whole, you know, back issue that has plagued me my whole life. And I have constant back pain and I'm always at his office trying to readjust and I eventually needed surgery to to correct it. And I probably will need another one. But uh, in my early 30s, I was sent to him by a, a great trainer friend of mine and uh, so at that point, it'd been, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I think. And he said, will you help me with this charity, please? It's, you know, it's in June. I said, of course, no problem. I'll, I'll help you with anything you want. Uh, and then uh, a few months elapsed and he, Dr. Duke's like, so are you ready for the triathlon? He's like, we're triathlons in June in Greenwich, Connecticut. It's called the Greenwich Cup. I was like, what's a triathlon? He encouraged you to do that. He's, he thought I signed up for a triathlon. Oh, I didn't even okay. know what I was signing up for. Wow. I thought I was okay. going to have to donate 500 portions of something, right, which is usually right, what we right, do, right? Right, right. I imagine it was a, a gala that had this, you know, sort of 20 chefs yeah, serving yeah, yeah, yeah. food. 
and you know we did we you know how often we did those yes. right yeah uh, and we do did them in our sleep and to this day we're still doing them these grazing events yeah and he's like no no my charity is the Greenwich uh, my charity is some organization and I set up a team uh, yeah. to run the Greenwich Cup it's a sprint triathlon and and I had so I had a deep dive into what a triathlon was and what a sprint was and luckily for me sprint is the easiest triathlon. But that's like saying it's, you know, the easiest, you know, uh, UFC battle you're ever going right. to face because it's still right. really hard. Yeah. So so a sprint is an 800-meter swim. It's a 15-mile bike ride and a three-mile run. Now, a couple of low points in my life as it refers to my health are important to note, and that was one of them. Mm-hmm. The end of the Union Pacific era, Rocco's both being sold and me being sort of uh, on my own without a restaurant to run, and all of a sudden discovering I'm in pretty bad shape. You mean just from the I, from the rigors of just, the work? Yeah, the and, day-to-day yeah. work, the day-to-day work, the lifestyle, which is, you know, just debilitating and destructive. It's it's a lot of late nights. It's yeah. a lot of, you know, Chinese takeout at 2 in the morning. Creaky chicken was my addiction. I had creaky chicken from, you know, three, three golden stars Chinese restaurant that was right down the block from my house. Right. And, uh, so that was, but you were young enough to, yeah, sure. That that wasn't, yeah. Yeah. You're in your mid thirties. You're still young enough to be able to perform really well every day. And so it wasn't, you're right. It wasn't a big issue, but it turned into a a, a bigger issue. So I started to do a deep dive on what a triathlon is and what gear you needed and who I need to be training with. So Mm -hmm. I found this, you know, ultra man triathlete guy and started training with him. Uh, and it, it was really, really freaking hard really hard so you have to swim then transition into a bike while you're soaking wet and then finish it with a run and then in a full triathlon and an ironman that's a the run is a marathon yeah yeah at the end of a crazy amount of other work and so i made it to that while ben silverman was asking me to come up with healthy food and appear on several seasons of biggest loser while my doctor, Dr. Michael Hammer, who I just saw recently at The Standard, was giving me one of those come-to-Jesus talks. You know, he's like, Rocco, yeah. I've been telling you you're healthy for a long time because I'm a bit of a paranoid, you know, guy. And I think I'm sick in every spot I saw. I was worried that something was going wrong. And so for many, many years, he took care of me from my mid-20s until 40s. Mm-hmm. So for most of those years, he was telling me, you're crazy, you're fine, you're healthy, you're too young to be sick. And then he was, and at that he point. He thought you were a hypochondriac. Like, yeah, I was a hypochondriac. I am a hypochondriac. And he uh, always tried to, you know, uh, advise me, you know, to take it easy and, and keep the stress down and uh, that I was too young to be sick and that I was perfectly healthy. And then finally he, was, he said, so, okay, you, your dream has come true. You're not that healthy. You're not that healthy anymore. Your blood pressure's creeping up. Your cholesterol's creeping up. You know, when you do the math, extrapolate 20 years, it's, you need to make a change. You're on a bad path. And so this is all happening in, in a six-month period. Yeah. Right after I sold Union, Pac- uh, Union Pacific to Jimmy Haber and got out of Rocco's. And so it felt like the universe was telling me, take a breath, take a beat, you idiot, and take care of yourself for mm-hmm. a moment. Mm-hmm. And then you can worry about you know your, your next career move and your next restaurant, whatever the heck it's going to be. And uh, little by little, this pursuit of health and wellness sort of took over and became my career because the more and more I got into it, the more fascinated I was by it, the the, the th- more thrilled I was with the results. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went from uh, 240 pounds, which was my highest weight at that time, and 
uh, a body fat percent approaching 20, almost 30, I think, mm -hmm. uh, 27, if I can remember correctly, to 160-something pounds, 172, I remember seeing that number on a scale, and a sub-10 body fat percent. Mm -hmm. And I did that in a year. Mm -hmm. And when you go through that kind of transformation, a lot of things happen. For your mood, your yeah. excitement for life, yes. your uh, ability to do things all changes for the better. Uh, I knew it was a compliment when people were accusing me of getting a major facelift. I appeared Having on Top on. Chef. I yeah. appeared on Top Chef, uh, and I As was so thin. Yeah, yeah, I was so thin. I think it was season four. I was so thin that people didn't recognize me. And, and they said, oh, he's gotten all that work done. And I'm like, no, I didn't get anything done. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. So you get, I sort of got tricked into doing the work to finish the triathlon, which, by the way, I finished second to last and still loved every minute of it. Uh, and, and we should talk about the triathlon. It's a whole head game you play with yourself and your opponent is yourself. And you want to stop the minute you the minute you start. You want to quit because it's like climbing a mountain. Because it's That's like beyond, Everest. Yeah, yeah, I can't even imagine. It's it. insane. Yeah, you want to quit the whole time. You're talking yourself out of quitting the whole time. That's the whole. That's the whole game. Just getting yourself to finish. And Do not, they prepare you for quit. that aspect of it? Is they, that part of the training? They don't prepare you for that. Uh, exactly as I described it, but they do tell you you have to do one to understand why or how you should do the next one. You have to get one under your belt so you understand what you're going through, uh, or understand what's going to be expected of you. Um, and after doing one, I, I totally got it. It was a, a complete mental exercise. Your physical fitness really had nothing to do with it. And it was sort of the ultimate test of your ability to be tenacious and committed. On the scoreboard, there's a time and there's, there's something called DNF, did not finish. Those are the two outcomes. And the DNF is, is like the most shameful thing that can happen, especially if it didn't happen due to an injury. Like, like if uh, it happened for psych psychologically. It, yeah, if it's just, you just, you just didn't win what the I said, mental ring, game. You ring the bell. As right, they, like exactly. an officer and a gentleman, when <laughs> yeah. they ring the bell yes, yes. and leave boot camp. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 If you ring the bell. If you ring the bell. Yeah, that uh, happens. You're telling me that happens. Yeah, it happens People, all the time. If you they're just any like, triathlon I can't, you go to, uh, you'll see all the DNFs, and the the ones that got hurt have a different, you know, sort of asterisk. Or and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's amazing because I, I remember I love this part of my life so much because it was illuminating and and wonderful on so many levels. I remember trying to catch the guy in front of me who was about a hundred, maybe fifty feet in front of me. And in triathlons, you you write your age on your left calf. And you write your um, number on your right arm. Is the age thing a requirement, or is. is that just tradition? It's a requirement because they um, they stage groups by age. Oh, really? So yeah, so the youngest professionals are the first to go into the water, and then the oldest professionals are last, and then the amateurs start mm -hmm. all by groups of age okay. that are you know five years apart. So. Uh, <laughs> And it's funny, it really is a good measure of how well you're doing because when I was, I was in the water and I was in my 30s, the group called Athena, which are women over 60, passed mm -hmm. me in the water, mm. even though they started six waves behind me. That's how long it took me to swim 800 uh, meters. Anyway, so the guy in front of me ha had uh, a little bit of a jump on me. I thought I could catch him, and I finally got close enough to see his number. It was 78. 
His number was 70, his age was 78. And I couldn't catch him for the rest of the oh race. Oh my gosh. And that was just like more like motivation. And like, oh my God, can you imagine if you're, you can, you can do this and be 78 years old and still perform like this? It's incredible. He was in fantastic shape. And then there's gear. So in the, in the triathlon, you get to buy a lot of gear, the bike fittings and the, the, all the clothes you wear. And it's like so, uh, it's so attractive because the gear just like hooks you and you've got to, you know, change settings on your bike every time you race. And so I got caught up in that world. I ended up doing uh, Ironmans. And uh, after a few years, I thought, well, after a few years of maintaining that weight and that level of health, getting a confirmation from my doctor that I had reversed everything that he was worried about. I thought, why well, I should share this with the world. This is incredible. Mm -hmm. It's like the ultimate, you know, hack. Iron Chef diet, right? Yeah. At that time Iron it's Chef the ultimate was a life big, hack. Yeah, it's yeah. it's exactly. It's the ultimate life hack. You can literally eat anything you want as much as you want and you you really don't have to worry about it cuz you're going to burn it all off. In fact, you know, uh, my favorite bakery in New York is Levant. Okay. They make the ultimate cookie. It's like a one-pound cookie with, you know, butter and chocolate and sugar and all the stuff that everyone tells you you shouldn't eat. Um, they're on the Upper West Side. They're famous for yeah, this yeah, cookie. Yeah. You know it, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So you know how good that cookie is, right? Mm -hmm. So that cookie was invented by two triathletes. Oh, wow. Who couldn't keep weight on. So when you're training for a triathlon, you, it's, your goal is to keep weight on because we lose weight at such a rapid pace. Yeah. So they invented this cookie as just something to keep to fill them with calories in the highest density form they could think of. Mm -hmm. They weren't bakers before. They mm -hmm. were like, how can we create an item of food that is so dense in calories that it'll it'll enable us to keep weight on? Yeah. Because you could end up underweight. Yeah. Um, and for a triathlon, that's very meaningful because the, the smaller you are in a triathlon, the faster you're gonna be. Yep. You wanna be very small, like a cyclist. Uh, so or a jockey. Yeah, not that small. <laughs> I think if you're small enough to be a jockey, you should be a jockey because they're gonna make, they make a lot more money than triathletes. So I I I sort of figured out a lot of hacks uh, to eating well and still having fun and you know not getting rid of alcohol completely and not getting rid of Levan cookies completely. Mm -hmm. And I thought I should I should this is important different. And something that's uniquely me at this point, and I should share it. And I thought, let me write a book about it because I think this is fascinating. And uh, oddly enough, I'd, I'd written I don't know five books at that mm -hmm. point, and no one wanted to buy this book. I had no time selling. No, this was no, which book? This was uh, now eat this. Okay, two thousand came out in two thousand six. Okay, I started pitching it in two thousand three four, and nobody wanted it because it seemed like a disconnect. No, no they were like. Rocco, you're the flavor guy. This is health and wellness. First of all, no one cares. No one's interested in health and wellness. You know, and you're every, the wrong messenger. And you're not apparently. the exactly. Yeah, you're not the health and wellness yeah. guy. You're the flavor guy. You're the guy right. who makes you know the foie gras and peaches and yes. all the stuff. I well, did. Well, flavor. We should say that was your first book, right? Exactly. Yeah, which yeah. you sold. Did it come out when you were? Were you still at Union Pacific when it came out? Oh uh, yeah, it, yeah, it did. Yeah. yeah it did. So, can I ask you a question yeah, before sure. we get too deep sure. in this? This is something I've always wanted to ask. Because I don't know if you were aware of this, but this is so interesting. Because this is what's going on with you behind, like, you know, behind the scenes. Like, you're, you know, you, you talked about this period after, you know, Union Pacific mm -hmm. and after Rocco's, which was the restaurant mm -hmm. on the restaurant. You did a lot of TV stuff mm -hmm. and all this kind of thing. This is what's going on with you. You're describing what was going on with you outside of that, right? Right. But here's what I want to know. We talked in part one. It's been a yeah, while, yeah. but we we talked in part one about the amount of um, 
heat that was on you at Union Pacific. I yeah. mean, you were the hottest, you don't have to respond to this, but you were the hottest chef in New York. We talked about all this last time. Now, well, here's what I'm just wondering. Do you know, and I always, it never really made sense to me, and I always was like, well, he doesn't owe everybody more restaurants, but do you know how many like chefs your age, a little bit, a little younger than you, like guys who, mm-hmm. you know, were kind of watching you as they were in cooking school, mm-hmm. like almost felt like they were like almost personally upset that you didn't do another restaurant right away. Did you perceive that from? I didn't for a very long time. But you're aware of it now. I'm a very aware of it because I heard that a yeah. lot very at the time. A lot yeah. like. Yeah. He threw it all away. Yeah. You know, yeah. he had it and he threw Crushed it all away. Tail. And I'm yeah, like, yeah. well, he could have it if he wanted it. Like, that's obviously not what he wants right now. But you are aware of it now. So I'm, I'm acutely aware of it How now. does that make you? First of all, how are you aware of it? I got some honest feedback from people. people that they you felt and I that know, way. And you squandered it. You, you know, you threw it all away. I was like, what are you talking about? Because from your side, you were just all the time. I was doing all, I was doing more than I did in eight years at Union Pacific. I I was multitasking like crazy, literally cooking every day, working on cookbooks, eating, Part of getting healthy is cooking your own food. Yeah. Big part of it. Yes. Because uh, you can control I, ironically, everything. Ironically, I was cooking more after Union Pacific and Rocco's than I was when I was the chef of those restaurants. Because, you know, with chefs, it, the more restaurants you have, the less you cook. Yeah. Yeah. And at a certain point, you never cook. Uh, and you're just sort of supervising cooks. And cooking is, to this day, something that's um, vitally important to me. You know, touching food, touching pans. Uh, producing something and serving it to people is is uh, you know a way for me to validate my skills, for me to feel good. It's an antidepressant for me. Uh, it's what I watch my my family do so lovingly my mm-hmm. whole life. My mom, my grandmother, my sure. aunts and uncles, and the joy that they brought to people's lives with it. Right. I'd like to think that I do some of that. Uh, so, yeah, when I realized the extent. To which people were disappointed. I felt, you know, bad, badly. Of course, I was, I was, not regretful, but sort of wished I, I at some point, made a different choice. Uh, and then when I see people who were in cooking school at that time and are out there now doing all of it, I'm like, well, I, I guess I could have done all of it. You mean all the extracurriculars? Yeah, they're doing yeah. restaurants and TV yeah, and yeah, yeah. you know QVC and and writing books. And and no one's complaining anymore. No one's calling them a sellout. No one's saying you can't do all that if you want to be a serious chef anymore. Because no people don't care about that anymore. The world's well, changed. It, did you look at it as a? This is interesting what you're saying because I think about the standard, right? And I think about how much you were there every day. Yeah. Because yeah. I came in like four or five times yeah. in a very short period of time. Yeah. You were always there. Yeah. I know that if you were in house, no one else was allowed to make the risotto. <laughs> no. There was no other person making risotto. <laughs> right. I, I only made the you risotto. You made every order. The two times I had to leave were Previous for commitments. Sobe. Yeah. I had to leave and I left. I was literally missed one service. And for Mohegan Sun event where they helicoptered me, I, I, I was gone 90 minutes. So I opened and closed the service. That's how serious I took it. So here's and my, risotto was not available. Is that true? I wasn't, yeah, I took oh, it off the menu. Oh, I didn't know that. I it was off the menu. If you yeah. weren't there. So yeah. here's my question. Because this this is a light bulb moment for me as you describe this. Did you did you see, and maybe this is a product of you know the time that you grew up in, right? Did you see all that other stuff as being 
mutually exclusive with being the chef in a restaurant? In other words, did you, like if you were going to be the chef in a restaurant, did you feel like I can't be a chef of a restaurant and do all that other stuff because I want to be in my restaurant? I don't know that did I was you see it as a choice? aware of the, the choices I was making and what they excluded and didn't exclude. I was sort of following uh, my gut a lot and, yeah. and, doing things that I thought made me happy and yeah. also, you know, provided an income. And in uh, that entire time, I was always talking to people about restaurants and working on restaurant concepts, whether it was multi-unit or single mm-hmm. unit, and always thought, I'm, of course, I'm going to open a restaurant at some point. And then 10 years later, I didn't, and it, I didn't miss it. And I didn't think I should be punished for, for it. Uh, and I, I always thought I'll be in a restaurant again uh, someday. But yeah. you, know, you didn't the, feel the, like you'd turn your back on the whole thing. Not at all. No, no, no. I was still a champion of the culinary arts. I still, mm-hmm. you know, preached the the gospel of cooking and yeah. uh, respected it as much as, as ever. And I believed I was still involved in it because I felt at that point it was very clear that a chef not as clear as as it is now, where like being an IG, IG influencer is part of being a chef now, right? Like, it's not as clear as it is now, but back then it was starting to be, become clear to me at least that being a chef didn't only mean you had to be in a restaurant. Um, yes, yeah, I do agree with it yeah. that it's so different. You know, the comparison I make now is you know you talk to members of Congress, yeah. and they say like they have to spend like whatever, like it's a crazy number. I can't remember now, but like thirty, forty percent of their time. Outside their office, because you're not allowed to do this from your office, doing fundraising, right? They spend an amazing right. amount of time doing right. fundraising, right. Right? Right. right? And that, to me, is what the life of a chef has become. Like, you have for for uh, for the oxygen and yeah. for there's so much competition now that you, you have to you be have, campaigning like when, all the time. Like yeah. when you see chefs on their Instagram and they're like every week they're in mm-hmm. a different city and you're like, aren't they? Yeah. Co-? It's like they're actually. Some of them don't even particularly like it, but that's the cost of say many of them being in business. Like it. It's called sales and marketing. A lot of right? them yeah. would, especially yeah. the younger ones, because that's when you yeah. have the, the you know the energy for yeah. it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Would rather be in their kitchens or home with their family. I, or I, that I was. Yeah. Uh, I was telling you just a few minutes ago that I was shooting uh, guys' grocery games, and there were a lot of really great chefs there with me shooting. And one conversation that came up was. We need to figure out how to travel less and be home with our family more. And we're looking for things that are, you know, that we can do to market our businesses and ourselves and our personal brands and our, you know, out, uh, our restaurant brands that don't require f- flying to all, you know, parts of the world and in the country. Yeah. So I think we're, we're sort of coming full circle where we were all sort of desperate for that kind of attention at one point in the nine, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And now we sort of understand that the balance is much more important than we thought. And yeah. you can, thanks to social media, I guess the one blessing of social media is that you can, you know, you have a platform that you can tell your story from. Right. That you can do from On home. the commute to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. You know, the late Charlie Trotter was famous within the industry for showing up at events. Like you talked about doing the Mohegan Sun thing. Yeah. That was Charlie's MO. Like Trotter right, would right. show up like minutes before the thing, yeah. do his course and leave and go back to Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And people thought that was restaurant. rude. But, but he wanted to be in the restaurant. Did he need to be at the after party? Like, right. What was the right. difference? Really? 
Yeah. You know, if he if he posted up for the charity, yeah. had his name on it, did the course. Yeah. You know, who cares? I think a lot of chefs are doing that. They're showing up and doing their bit and then getting back to their restaurants. If yeah. you look at look at all the top chefs, they've got multi unit empires now and, and a guy like Wolfgang Puck still still killing it in in the industry. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I went to Spago and he was there. He still cooks. I went to Spago and he was he there. Still cooks. You know? So yeah. I mean he's not like on the like yes, no, but he yeah, still yeah. likes to yeah. drop in, he cooks yeah. at home, he yeah. yeah. You relate to all that. Totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I always wondered if you even knew, uh, you know, the way people... No, not at the time. ...talked, because I... I, and I, I and regret I, not knowing. I should have known. I'm, I'm, you know, I may have made different decisions, because there is a responsibility to the community that helped raise you, right? There, there's, there's some responsibility. You're living your life. I always, yeah. even back then, I was like, he doesn't owe people another rest. I never understood them... I mean, if, if anything, it was a backhanded compliment because they thought you were, yeah. you know what I mean? They thought you were one of the, I know how hard you worked, um, yeah. but you're one of these chefs that people thought at, uh, that people thought, you know, were really kind of touched, right? Like you, they felt like you had a gift. Yes, you had to learn technique and all that, mm-hmm. but you had like an inspirational gift. You, you were doing dishes that were very unique to you. And that was terribly exciting. And that's not the most common. It's much less common now than it even was then. And I think that's what it was. They were like, how can he have that that spark? You know, how can he have be touched by whatever mm. with that with that talent and vision yeah. and not want to be right. doing that? Yeah, night. every yeah. night. Yeah. How can he not? I think I just think it's short I think it's short circuited there. Ability to understand it. I'm almost I think, sorry I, I brought it up because to me it was it look, always seemed unfair to me. You, you, I think you could look at a lot of those people as uh, partners in uh, in an adventure, in a in a endeavor, and they invested in me, right? Emotionally, they, uh, emotionally with ink, with yeah, sure, you know, right? right? Yeah. They, they, I think they probably felt they invested in me. And wanted the ROI, right? They didn't mm, want they didn't want to help me pop on the scene and then get nothing for it for the next ten years, right. you know. Um, so I think there may be some legitimacy to that. You're, you're right; I didn't owe anybody anything, but at the same time, that's interesting. That's a very wise response. Did it feel especially good then when you were when you were at the standard and like people like Ruth Reichel were coming in and. Yeah, was I, that I, like I really a- loved being on the line, cooking every night. What I forgot about the restaurant business is that for guys like me who are just going to be home, uh, it's a it's how you socialize. It's right. how chefs socialize. Yeah, our friends come in every night. You know, a friend is every night at the standard. Someone I knew from you know a current friendship or past friendship came in and. That's how I saw a lot of people. Every right? time I was there, yeah. Kim Yorio, people yeah, may not know that yeah, name, yeah, but yeah. a big PR person. Yeah, one of the biggest uh, book PR people uh, in the uh, industry. Uh, Wiley Dufresne and right. Mark Ladner yeah, together yeah, one yeah, night when yeah, I was yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, there was, was all... Bobby Spiegel, who, who owns a catering company that helped put me through college. I worked for him in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, yeah. just in between Culinary Institute of America and BU. Uh, and now he has a legendary catering company. He's good friends with Ladner. That had to be rewarding. And so I, I really enjoyed that part a lot. I really enjoyed the cooking and the running a team and trying to inspire 20-somethings 
to do more than they see other people do. Yes. Because right now, you do, but the level of expectation of a, of a 25-year-old cook is just not the same as it was when I was 25 years old. And uh, it was fun watching those cooks grow into people who would give much more than was uh, expected of them by today's standards and love it and feel fulfilled and uh, feel like they were getting the the best end of the deal. When you, when you say the expectations, you mean because I'm assuming so, so now you mean, the expectations you are. Well, first you, of all, you can't push people the way you got pushed. No, there is none of that. They're absolutely not happening anymore. There is no uh, taunting, teasing. There's no uh, even leading by example. You, can, you If you work too hard, people say, please don't ask that guy to work that hard because right. he's a line employee. He's an hourly. Yeah. At 35 hours, he gets five hours of break, and then it's overtime, right. and you don't want to get into overtime. And, yeah. Uh, you know, the rules are strictly enforced now, and so yeah. you can't do Whereas that. Whereas, like, when you were coming up, I don't know your situation exactly, but it was very common that people were working six, 16-hour days a week. Yeah, yeah. we That was normal. That was normal for yeah. $480 a week, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got shift pay. Yeah. Uh, if you got paid. Yeah, but usually, if you were working usually, in a high-end restaurant and had ambitions yeah, of being a yeah. chef, that was pretty much the norm. I'm not at, yeah, by the way. usually any, preceded by many months of working for free. For anyone. If you were lucky. Right, if you were lucky enough yeah, to get in. To right, because there were so few yeah, restaurants exactly. of that level. For anyone who listening, by the way, I'm not advocating for no, all that. No, but it, no, it, neither it, of us It is definitely, though, a difference. It's just different. Yeah. It is a different yeah. scenario. It's a different landscape. So, So what was happening at the standard is people who were looking for a job came to work understood the parameters of a 35 to 40 day work week understood more than 8 hours is not is not normal anymore that eight you know you work mm-hmm. an 8 hour day starting to see the beauty of a bigger commitment to a craft and having the and and my presiding over that was really uh, one of the the best parts of that experience is I got to watch 25, 20 somethings go from I only need to do this. I only, my these are my expectations. I'll never go beyond those. I'm happy with that. Everyone's happy with that. Management's mm-hmm. happy with that. To oh, I want to do this event with you. Oh, I want to, can you, sh- can I stay and can you show me how to make that sauce? And, you know, the things you, I heard 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and that's a really beautiful part of running a kitchen. The camaraderie, the teacher-student relationship that can happen, that doesn't always happen, but that mm-hmm. can happen. Uh, and I think being on the line every day and cooking every day and, you know, really helps you get there. Yeah. Uh, and I miss that a lot. I, and I realized that I missed that a lot from yeah. now, the old days on, you know, in restaurant business. This is really interesting. Kat Kinsman wrote a piece about you mm-hmm. that ran right after you left the restaurant. Yeah. And she opined late in the article, so I don't feel like I'm putting you on the spot because it was right there, that you're not you're gonna that you're gonna be back sooner than later if you have your way. Is that an accurate statement? If I have my way, I'll be back sooner. You want to be you yeah. you yeah. got the you got the scent back. I feel like I have a unique voice again. Mm-hmm. There were a number of years where I would talk to people about restaurants and I didn't understand why it was important for me to be in the mix mm. because the food that I did at Union Pacific started to become dated. Uh, but with the healthy approach blended in, my ability from now years of R&D and, and 14 books later, 
nine of them healthy books, uh, working one-on-one with clients in my sort of clinical setting that we could talk about in mm-hmm. another podcast mm-hmm. if you want, where I deliver food and create bespoke menus. Uh, well, this actually came up in part one. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, now, and, and with there now being an appreciation, understanding, and demand for that health and wellness aspect, yeah. the, I have something special to offer again. Like I did when I had Union Pacific, yeah, that distinguishes me from all the rest. Otherwise, what what do I go back for? Just to do another tuna tartare, steak tartare, right? You know, porterhouse for two menu. What, I, just you know. right. Why? It sounds like you had your matrix moment where everything you've done, kind of coalesced. Coalesced, right? Yeah, right? I think so. I, I, well, I don't know if I would call it a matrix moment because that's a pretty high standard, but. Uh, I feel like all the the different worlds that Aligned. I occupied co- collided a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and I felt this, that at this. I felt yeah. that. I mean, you look. It was a place called. The, I mean, there was a there was a, a um, imperative to keep like you know those big pro. You know, there was like of course, yeah, the, it was the grill part of it, yeah, right? Yeah. But there was a lot of stuff on that menu that was <laughs> fifty eight items. That was in your wheelhouse, yeah, though, yeah, of yeah. of your style. But so also, I had to go really big to be able to include all the things that yes. I wanted to include. So it was, we had 58 menu items. I counted it so yeah. many times. We talked about it so many times. Yeah. Well, this is a good segue because you, um, again, I don't feel like I'm, it feels like a rude thing to say, but it's on the very first page of your, this book. So you have this new book. This is your latest. You've gone um, whole hog. <laughs> well, that would be okay, right? Because that's fat. In, in a keto world, yeah. 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 Rocco's Keto Comfort Food Diet. This is your new book. Yeah. But it opens, and I was surprised to see you say this. You, the, oh, very, I think it's the first thing in the book. You talk about you were back in a restaurant, and what well, we were just saying, it's different in your early 50s than it is in your yeah. 30s, yeah. that the grind took its toll on it, you. You it, gained it, some yeah. weight. You were yeah. feeling pudgy and out of shape. Yeah. You wanted to kind of, you're fine that I'm saying this? No, I'm, it's absolutely I mean, it's fine. in the book, it's right? The it's book. right there yeah. in black and white. Yeah. And, and, and you wanted to a reset yeah. stat. Right, yeah. you once you were out of that environment, yeah. you were like taking yeah. stock, and you wanted it, and you that that's sort of the in a way the 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 way in, right? Mm-hmm. That's what shoehorns us into this or glides us into this mm-hmm. book, right? Yeah. You just talk about this for a minute, and then sure. The thing I'd love you to do is define because I think the words out there, people. My brother-in-law has been a keto guy for years now. Yeah. Um, but I'd love you just to sure. define it. So, so a few things. I I. Spent a year at the Standard before we even announced it to the press, and that's the time it took to prepare and and you know plan structural changes, design changes, and all that. Um, and that was hard. And then when we opened, it was literally you know every single day on the line. Right? I never I never fully staffed up, so there was always if I didn't work the line, there was always going to be a station that wasn't covered. Um, and I really threw everything I had into that experience everything everything i was all in from day one uh which means lots of late nights uh you know self-care becomes less important and i actually gained the most weight i've ever gained in my life i was at my heaviest ever broke a new record uh a personal best in weight gain uh sorry uh, yeah that couldn't have been easy for you that could not have been easy for you it's okay and i remember that when i first had to lose weight for the triathlon, I did Atkins, which is a keto diet. Mm-hmm. Some people argue that it's not, but at least in 
the induction phase, which is the first part of Atkins, you're on a keto diet. Okay. And funny, funny thing happened on the way to writing this book. People now know what keto is, understand it, love it, embrace it, and have been using keto, you know, sort of regularly for, I'm going to say, five to eight years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. But I if feel you like mention that's keto, I... everyone knows what it is. I've written seven keto books. I never put the word keto on the cover mm. because I didn't want to confuse people. I didn't that think people That felt too understood. insidery. It felt too... Too insidery. It did. Yeah. It did, yeah. It felt like... Like a, if you weren't a, some... If you weren't doing it or... A mathematical term yeah. or, you know, a medical term. Right. Yeah. I mean, I t- in my book, The Pound a Day Diet, half the book talks about ketogenesis and you know, what happens when you create calorie deficits and Mm -hmm. carb deficits. So almost every one of my books employ the low-carb, high-protein, high-fat, some not high-fat, but low-carb was is the thread that runs through all of my healthy books. One thing we can all agree on, we need to eat less processed, uh, processed, starchy, uh, empty calorie carbs, right? That's something that is universally agreed upon. Almost no one will refute that unless... You know, you run six ultra marathons a year or something like that. Then you can eat all the carbs you want because your body is running on glycogen 100% of the time. Glycogen is the energy that your body stores in the blood mm-hmm. as a result of eating carbs. Ketones are the, the energy your body stores in the blood or ketone bodies mm-hmm. as a result of eating a lot of fat. And when you eat a lot of fat, as you do in a ketogenic diet, which is a high-fat, low-carb diet. So when I say high-fat, I'm saying that 60% of your calories should come from fat, 30 from protein, and the balance 10 or 20% from carbs, which is about, if a person's on a 2,000-calorie diet per day, it's about 30 grams of carbs, which is nothing. Now, can I interrupt for one second? Most, yeah. This is the thing that kids me, because I did for a time, and I just started doing it again recently, use, um, you know, a food tracker, my fitness pal, yeah, sure. right? And you can break, you can do macros and you can yep. look at your, how your food breaks down. Yep. Now, vegetables mm-hmm. are, are carbs. Right. And but th- so they, re- now you do use the term very often in this book, non-starchy carbs. That's right. But even with vet, even accounting for vegetables, you would keep the percentage that low. No, there are a lot of vegetables that don't get counted, just like in Weight Watchers free category. So any like any cel- non- I think celery was in there. Almost every vegetable, you know, cruciferous vegetables, uh, root vegetables, uh, almost everything that is not a starchy carb, you know, like a potato or a yam or uh, corn. Corn is one of yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most fruits. You just don't count. They're off the meter. A lot of them. Uh, the vast majority of vegetables and fruits are off off the meter. Uh, I restrict it in the first phase of the diet that I lay out in this in this book yeah because it gets confusing and if you do eat too many you know too much mango or grapes you're gonna get in trouble so 30 Got grams it. just to put it in context um, glass of milk milk has 16 grams of sugar it's gonna be at least 20 grams of carbs mm-hmm. if you have a latte in the morning you're done that's yeah. your 30 grams right right uh, if you have a caramel, mochaccino, espresso, <laughs> grande, uh, that's probably 100 grams of carbs. Mm-hmm. So most people have no clue how many carbs they're consuming. So to get from the average American carb intake per day to 30 is a huge ask. But the 
the flip side is you can eat as much fat as you want. Now, fat, of course, means uh, all meats, all seafood, all dairy. That's the thing that usually gets people to do a keto diet is, oh, I can eat all the cheese and cream. And, and obviously, those are foods that are rich, feel like, feel luxurious in the mouth. Um, they provide satiety both physiologically and psychologically. So mm -hmm. you're, so when you eat cheese, you feel satiety and you feel good and you get the little serotonin, you know, mm -hmm. juice that you need. And satiety is like a feeling of satisfaction. Fullness. Of like sated. Right, right sated, right. exactly, yeah. yeah. And fat is a really good way to feel satiety. Carbs is a ter are t terrible at providing satiety. Carbs burn fast, they're the first source of fuel uh, your body goes to, yeah. And if you have an abundance of carbs, you never burn fat. Hence, they get stored, and we 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 get become overweight. So I used Atkins, aka Keto, to get in shape for that um, sprint marathon a long fifteen years ago now. Yeah. And then uh, because Keto is very popular now, and that and people understand it, I was sort of kind of thrilled that I didn't have that conversation again with my publisher where they said, well, you sure you want to call it keto? It sounds too scientific. It, and we all agreed that this is a great time. And I used it for myself to get myself back in shape. So I'm not 100% there now. Mm -hmm. I still struggle. Uh, but I did lose 20 pounds using the diet that's in this book. Since you left, since you got off the I started before yeah. and then and, and as of like a month ago. Okay. You know, uh, which is not great news because I'm still not in great shape, but I'm getting there very fast. Mm -hmm. Is this oversimplifying? I mean, to put it in like the elevator pitch version, no. right? You you get yourself into a state of ketosis is when your body is drawing energy from your stored fat. Is yes. that is that basically that's it? That's, yeah. it. that's your body the burns fat instead of carbs. So we all. So have, if you don't, if you starve your body stores, of carbs, unless you're Saquon Barkley, we all have fat stores, you know, and most of us have an abundance of fat stores mm -hmm. in our bodies, and unless you exercise them away, your body's just going to hold on to them. They're going to grow. A great way to get rid of them quickly is a keto diet. Just eat, consuming lots of fats, whether they're saturated or not saturated, it doesn't matter. It, it works. Just think of your body as. as um, you know, a Ferrari with two gas tanks, one filled with, you know, uh, carbs and one filled with fat. If you deplete the carbs, it's going to use the fat. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and eating a lot of protein is, is, a, is a style of diet that I like a lot. But in a keto world, protein can get converted and stored as uh, carbs and ultimately fat too. So mm -hmm. that's why it's very important to eat a lot of fat, 70% yeah. of your diet. That's an enormous amount of fat. But eating a lot of fat means you burn a lot of fat. I know it doesn't sound logical, and a lot of people have a hard time because they're they're saying you're telling me to eat a lot of you know bacon, eggs, cheese, and that that's going to cause weight loss. Well, yeah, it will. Yeah, it will cause weight loss as long as you keep the carbs under thirty. Well, it's if it's, you don't, if you don't, you can gain everything back real fast. Right, and that's usually then where, your body drinks all that up. Yeah, because it's been trained to do that. Want. So you break. Yeah, so it. in the pursuit of. Uh, health and wellness or, you know, to serve your vanity and look really good yeah. and wear a size, you know, 30 pants, a size two dress. We've tried a lot of things that just don't work, don't make sense, aren't good for your health in the, in the long term. Right. But we're at the end of that, I believe. I'm hopeful that we're at the end of that. I mean, ultimately, what you want to do is 
live in a world where you're eating a Mediterranean diet pattern. Yes. Where 50% of your uh, calories come from fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. Whole fruits and vegetables, not fat-free food or sugar-free food. And not food that are not food that's wrapped in a package of yeah. some kind. Well, you talk right. Yeah. You, the package thing yeah. is big. You you do talk about um, leafy greens and salads, and you know berries are fun. They're sweet, but they're fine. You yeah. talk about berries yeah. as being yeah, really. Yeah. You say yeah, you strawberries, actually, blueberries, you say you actually eat them beyond love, the point love, of satiation, love them. right? Yeah, Just because yeah. they make you, they make your them. mouth happy. Yeah, yeah. But okay, so. The subtitle of this book is Eat the Food You Miss and Still Lose Up to a Pound a Day. So you yes. break this up into a few stages. There's yes. the cleanse, right. which is a three-day... Mm-hmm. Um, intense cleanse. In, where it's you, fairly intense. Yeah, you're, you're drinking coffee. There's a coffee beverage. Keto coffee, which yep. is coffee blended with fat of some yeah. kind, uh, grass-fed butter, ghee, coconut oil. This falls uh, in the realm people may have heard of bulletproof coffee. Yeah, exactly. and that's what that is. But the bulletproof diet is a keto diet. Yes. That's exactly what it yeah. is. Um, and... Bone broth, mm-hmm. and then one one meal a day. It's maybe six hundred calories. Right. Now that sounds brutal. Days. It's three days. It's three you days. Can yeah, do we've, that. anyone can do it for three days, and it's tremendously effective in uh, sounding the alarms in your uh, body and in, in your, you know, the nervous system, the digestive system, uh, and all other systems that you're serious about making a big change right now. Yeah. Um, the one thing you, you have to do during that time is maintain hydration, drinking half your body weight in ounces right. in you water. you talk about this because you will lose important. a lot of water weight. Uh, not only will you, will you lose a lot of water weight if you're not consuming uh, fruits and vegetables and other things that contain water, you may not have enough water. You know, mm. our bodies need to be 65 to 70% hydrated yes. water. Yeah, right. So, okay, so there's yeah. that. Then... There's a 21-day period? 21-day, yep, tier one, yeah. And that's, what that, What are you smiling at? I read your book. Yeah, I can't believe you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you have photographic memory? I can't remember. Uh, I, I, I do a, a little bit. Memory. I tend to remember, like, what side yeah. of the page things are on, yeah. and, yeah. yeah, I do tend to remember stuff like that. Yeah, and then I include inter- intermittent fasting in uh, first phase, second phase. It's where you go about eight hours without eating anything, and it has the same effect. 16 hours without eating. Or the, Sure. No? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I think you don't you pres- yeah from noon from noon uh, until from from eight eight ish p.m. Noon. to yeah. noon yeah. yeah which just I remember because it dovetails with what I've been doing I told you before I started right. recording right that's right. basically the schedule I'm on right yeah. now uh, eight hours also works that's why I so okay. intermittent fasting from what I've seen works start, starts with eight hours minimum and then obviously some people do it for two days you know so just depending on how crazy you want to go I, or, right, there are people who won't eat for a day a week. They'll, they'll right, or they'll take two day. non-consecutive or, days. Right. Well, there's a. I think I can say. I don't think he'd mind. Nick Solaris, the food writer. Yeah, yeah. He lost fifty pounds. Yeah, he's in great shape now. Yeah. Doing that for a year, and he was a, he specializes in writing about meat. And he, he eats, eats a lot tons of meat. Of meat. Yeah, yeah. And he in a year without changing his diet, the other five days he dropped fifty pounds yeah. just doing yeah. the intermittent thing. It's amazing. They also say, do you have a, do you have an opinion on this? They they uh, so the reason I one of the reasons I started doing it is at my last physical, my blood sugar was a little high, and they say a lot of people. That intermittent fasting can really help regulate uh, regulate your blood Absolutely. glucose levels by giving your body, you know, a sixteen hour rest mm-hmm. every day where you're not mm-hmm. processing. And do you agree with that? I, I, I do agree with that. It's uh, first of all, it reduces the overall amount of calories you're eating. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what everyone is trying to get people who are dieting to do is reduce calories. There's yeah. a there's a new diet that Adele was on that claims you can eat chocolate and you can drink red wine. 
but the calorie limit is 1,000 a day. So you can eat chocolate and drink red wine up to 1,000 calories. And if you do that, of course, you're going to lose weight, right? So, so if, you're, yeah. you're, you're inter- if you're fasting and skipping, uh, I guess it would, for me, it would be almost three meals a day because I metabolic fast, which is a completely different kind of fasting. Um, you're reducing your overall calorie intake by two to 3,000 you know, a week at yeah. least. Yeah. yeah. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to regulate your blood sugar uh, for that reason. And because if you're eating starchy carbs – you're popping your blood sugar all the time. And then you end up with insulin resistance and potentially pre-diabetes. Mm-hmm. And- so the subtitle is eat the food you miss and still lose up to a pound a day. Now, the, another way to put that, I would say, is cravings. This is a book that once you get, you do the, you do the cleanse, you do the, the three weeks, mm-hmm. and then you're into the, what do you call it, maintenance? Maintenance, yeah, yeah. where we add back desserts and... and- and, yeah, and some, some indulgent uh, foods. But in the first two phases, you're still yeah. eating, you know, buffalo chicken salad and fried chicken and, uh, you know, all kinds of crazy indulgent stuff. Right. This book is all, every dish in this book is what one would consider an indulgent dish. Taste-wise. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and texture. And, and, and when you get to use the amount of fat you, you can use in a keto diet, I mean, look at this. This is... Yeah. We, we were very, very purposeful in picking dishes that would be on a top 10 favorite dish list for somebody. Yeah, there's macaroni and cheese. Yeah, exactly. Spicy bacon, Brussels sprouts. Um, these are just sides. Parmesan herb French fries. You you also have these Parmesan crisps yes. that are kind of a high yes. value Frico. thing in the, yeah. it's basically yeah. Frico, yeah. but you also, yeah. you have a meatloaf recipe That's right. where you yeah. sub out the breadcrumbs with, with crushed. Mm-hmm. So you go to the step of making mm-hmm. the crisps so that you have something that's yeah. got a granular yeah. uh, character. Yeah. And then you, you crumble that up and that takes yeah. the place of the breadcrumbs. Yeah. So you're using a high protein, low fat, because Parmesan or Reggiano is a little bit lower fat than most cheeses. Uh, instead of what would be an empty calorie starchy carb. Yeah. I mean, this to me, you know, years ago when Tasty Delight was a big thing, I don't know how many yeah. people remember Tasty Delight. The yogurt it was this company, yeah. fake uh, ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> it was all chemicals, I think. Yeah, it was like cellulose. But it had plus, like, it, it was like no fat, yeah. tasted delicious. And every night when we used to live on the Upper West Side of New York, I would say to Caitlin, I would say, uh, you know, I'm ready for the sweet and creamy. And right. I would go get it, right? Got but because yeah. but it hit the buttons. Like right. this to me, these are recipes right. that hit the buttons. Yes. That if you really love food, yes. these hit the buttons. So for you don't sure. feel deprived. The so physical you're, buttons, you're the psychological in, buttons. Emotional. Yeah. yeah like yeah. you're enjoying your food. Yeah. You're, you're getting these things that you crave mm-hmm. and you don't feel mm-hmm. like you use the Chicken word. Chicken parm. You use the word cardboard somewhere in the yeah. opening page. You don't feel like you're eating cardboard. Cardboard, right. which is what a lot right. of these diets. Right. Diet without deprivation is right. a very important yeah. mechanism that a lot of diet experts try to employ so people stick with it. Yeah. You can deprive yourself for three days, six days, maybe 21, maybe 30, but then it's not going to work. Everyone has their yeah. threshold. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And then the other thing you do, which I love, because I was reading this and I'm like, oh, can I, can I really, you know, like, I told you I've been doing intermittent fasting yeah. and da 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 da, and I'm like, oh, I don't, you know, I do for my, you know, for I say for work, I'm not a critic, but when I catch up with people, it's over dinner usually yeah. or lunch, and then in the back of the book you have tips on how to get, how Eat to out. survive in a restaurant, yeah. yeah, which is great, yeah, yeah, which so in the, part so, one people who've listened to part yeah. one will remember yeah. I told the story of going with you to the clam, right, and how you didn't even put cocktail sauce on your shrimp, yes, no, right? cocktail sauce is the enemy of keto diets, so yeah, yeah the, the the one diet that you can uh, 
execute easily in a restaurant as a keto diet. I, my clients are, are always asking, I'm going, I'm traveling, what do I order? And I say, you know, your sauce should be melted butter, lemon juice, and Tabasco, and then grilled whatever protein you want, and then some green vegetables. Mm-hmm. If you eat that, you can eat that all day long, you'll lose weight every yeah. time, every yeah. time, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some of the strategies I talk about. Um, making sure you get sauces on the side, try to get yeah. just plain grilled foods, yeah. that kind of thing. Great. All right. What else is going on in your life? What are you excited about right now? It's early in the year still. I'm really excited about what's going to happen next in terms of me and, and uh, restaurants, in terms of the, the industry. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, playing you're, with a few ideas. You're chomping at the bit. Talking to, to a few people. Uh, oh, look at the smile. Yeah, this is the biggest yeah, smile yeah, you've yeah, had yeah, since yeah. we sat down. I, I, uh, I want to be on that line again, and I want to be cooking for people, and I want to have that, you know, you were – Really supportive at the standard. You came oh, so, so often. I was so I don't think I've been to a restaurant that much. <laughs> in ten, I mean, well, I came in four or five times. I how know, long do we, How long were I you know, there at the yeah. end? By the time it was from well, announcement it was, it was to two six, years total. Oh, announcement. No, from uh, announcement to to leaving. Yeah, uh, eight months maybe. Yeah, yeah, not even a year. Yeah. yeah, and I was in four or five times. Yeah, I think. that's true. And I had a reservation the week you left. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm gonna I, I already missed that. I'm gonna miss yeah. it. I can tell. Uh, and. I'm really inspired by the fact that there are still people out there who really want to learn how to cook, who really understand the value of mentorship and, you know, putting in some, a little extra time to learn valuable skills. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so all is not lost when it comes to the labor force. Uh, and, uh, I'd like to go even further in the plant-based direction and I'm getting less and less resistance as time goes on, you know, when I f- wrote my first book, everyone thought I was out of my mind, and now they're like, "Oh, you were the first. This is, you know, this is uh, this is what's up Look, right now." I mean, you know? the Impossible yeah. Burger is a yeah. big thing now. Yeah. Uh, they were serving a plant-based dinner at the Golden Globe Awards, yeah. right? Uh, I mean, it's like this is. Yeah, and if you go to LA, they're. Plant-based restaurants everywhere. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Not so much in New York, but we're getting there. There's some there's some really good yeah. ones, though. Really good ones. Yeah. Yeah, there's a handful of really good, one, yeah. good ones here. In L.A., you can live in communities that are vegan, you know, that where the schools right. are vegan. Yeah. And, you know, you can raise your family in a vegan Yeah. 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 No, I think, uh, great. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll be waiting with baby cool. breath. Cool, cool. While we're here, what do, yes. what do you think uh, would be a good next move? I'm, so I'm debating between... On the... We're, I'm still rolling... Yeah. Okay. I'm debating between a, you know, like 10 seat counter space where I just cook five nights a week for you in front of you yeah. to uh, all the way to the other extreme, which is a multi-unit plant-based, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner kind of environment. Oh, you're asking me just what what would I prefer? Yeah. You're a good friend. You know my history. You know what I can do. I'll tell you the answer. truth. I'll yeah. give you the exact yeah. answer. Okay. Uh, I spoke to my agent this morning. Okay. I don't even know if you guys know each other. Uh, and uh, I told him I was, I said, I'm really mm-hmm. excited. I'm going to go see Rock of, you know, because we, you know, I'm so glad we're back in touch, you know. And and uh, he goes, you know, that guy should just do a 30-seat restaurant and just cut loose and he'd be the hottest thing. You know, he that's like, he'd still blow everyone away because he was around in the UP days, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I said, I know. I mm. said, I know. So okay. my answer is the idea of you doing like yeah. a counter thing yeah. Yeah. and just strutting your stuff. Just cooking, uh, serving, cooking. I, just, I, 
I don't know what people think when they hear this because I said in the first in the intro to the first one, like, I mean, look, I was your PR guy. That's right. You did my, my first, wedding. Yeah. You did my wedding. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, we go way back. Way back. Yeah. Um, Mid nineties. Yeah, but um, uh, so I don't know if, what, if people take this with a grain of salt or whatever, but. Um, you know, I've always, I don't know if you remember, I told the story in part one of bringing Alfred into Dava, a restaurant that did not, did not succeed because I had had your food at tastings and I was so high on you that I wanted him to see who the guy right. I knew was going to be the next. Right. Like I, even then when I don't think my taste was nearly as refined as it is now, I knew, yeah. you know, I just knew that you were yeah. special. Thanks. So the idea of you doing that again or something in long, in that vein even if it f- stays within the lane of the mm-hmm. healthfulness that you've found, mm. is tr- that would be incredibly exciting to me. I probably mm. wouldn't be able to come as often because <laughs> you wouldn't have, you as, much, you you wouldn't have as many seats to give up. Yeah. But, um, but, Always uh, be a seat for you. Oh, thank you. But uh, that would be terribly exciting to me. And the other thing, Rocco, that I think we, you know, you know, for all, for the downside we talked about of you in terms of feeling like you, you know, let your, um, some aspects of your health go a little while you were back on the line. The thing we didn't talk about is it is remarkable that in your fifties you could come back and be. You weren't on the. You weren't on the outside of the kitchen calling orders. You no, no, were. No, I was on the inside. You were on the inside cooking, cooking and, and during service, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that is certainly not true of many people yeah. that have been at it as long as you. Yeah. And it's very much not true for. I mean, a lot of people, if they're, if we, they're, we didn't have enough staff to have an outside expert. <laughs> we, we, for real. No, I if know. If we wanted yeah. to do outside expediting, we would have to hire another sous chef. No, but I'm saying it's unusual <laughs> yeah. for yeah. someone at your age to either both want to and be able to right. Right. do that for five nights a week. But you were doing it, mm. so I think, I don't think that's going to be true forever. You no, know, of course not, yeah. and and I think it would be amazing for you to do that mm. since you asked. I just want to make sure we're on the record here because I have not yeah. stopped recording. No, no problem. No, that would be an amazing thing. It's good to know. And I think if I could combine that with some of the uh, health metrics that I now you know live every day and I think are important, like you know minimal use of dairy, gluten, red meat. Yeah. Uh, I think there are a lot of New Yorkers who would love to be able to go out and have a vaguely healthy meal <laughs> that's still delicious, you know. Well, the thing that was, you know, it was like, you know, it's like when people talk about tricking their kids into eating mm-hmm. vegetables, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that was kind of, I feel like your menu at the standard, like yeah, yeah. you didn't like, I'm, I go to that review. I don't want to say who, I can't remember actually which one it was, but the one that said the potatoes were like loaded with butter. And I re- remember talking to you about that dish and I'm like, yeah, no butter. That was not fact check. There <laughs> yeah. were no, there's no yeah. butter in those, yeah. but, but that, yeah. that person didn't know that they mm-hmm. were dairy free. Huh? They didn't know it. They didn't miss it, yeah. you know, and I think that, so the idea that you could have a place where... The- well, it makes sense. Remember, we we uh, we only marked, we didn't mark what was dairy-free. We marked what contained on the menu. We annotated dishes that contained dairy and gluten, right. which were so few that you may yeah. have missed that. May have missed, And yeah. just assumed everything had Especially dairy. in a room like yeah. that, yeah. the yeah. lighting was kind of dim and yeah. sexy. Yeah. Yeah. And but But the other thing to me is the idea that you could bring, like if I'm... Uh, if I'm going out with someone, uh, you know, who's around the food business and they want to go eat something, you know, they want to go to the hottest new place, right? Yeah. And maybe they wouldn't necessarily choose to go to a place that had, you know, a quote-unquote healthful menu. Aspect to it, yeah. Yeah, but you, you, 
it wouldn't you didn't you wouldn't feel like you were making that decision to go eat your food, mm-hmm. right? Because you found this sweet spot where mm-hmm. where the, the flavor and the texture mm-hmm. and all that is there, you know, in this in this kind of sneaky way. Yeah. <laughs> Sneakily helpful yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So that's my Have two you, cents. Did you hear of um threesome toll booth? No. Uh it was a toll booth. The legend goes that Jay-Z and Beyonce wanted a or Jay-Z wanted to create a very special experience for Beyonce. I don't know if this is true or not. This is the 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 legend. Uh, now this that, sounds familiar. Incredibly yeah. special experience. Yeah. They got this high-end bartender, and uh, they did sort of like a 90-minute um, cocktails tasting with, you know, the finest champagnes, liquors. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and then the guy spun it out into a business. And, the, and it was basically two people, seats a seat for... Seating for two plus the the bartender, mm-hmm. and he curated this incredible experience, and it was you know several hundred dollars a person, mm-hmm. and it was in some ratty parking lot in mm-hmm. some part of Brooklyn that looks like it was abandoned and was impossible to get in, and hmm. yeah, yeah. I was thinking maybe so when I talk about six seats, ten seats, I'm thinking maybe if we can recreate something like that, but with food, it might be interesting. In a like in a in a pop up kind of way, maybe yeah. You could do that. You could actually have a traveling thing and not yeah. even – you could just set up for 10, 20 days at a pop in different right. cities. Right, right. With what you're Oh, saying. in different cities. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Lots to talk about. Thank you, in man. In between Thank triathlons. Yeah. <laughs> All right, bud. Thank you. Great to yeah, see you. Great to see you, too. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to say this before I was. What I, do you need to say? I need to say oh, again. I didn't really feel like a like a promotional. <laughs> yeah. But the book is Rocco's Keto Comfort Food Diet. Eat the foods you miss and still lose up to a pound a day. The official pub date is March three. Yeah, it is available already for pre order. And there's a there's a giveaway with a pre order right now. So okay, yeah, very good. Get a book plate, sign book plate. Yeah, so get it. Get the food you crave. Yep. and be keto. All right, thanks, Rock. Thanks, man. And that's our show for this week. I also need to belatedly thank, because I did not do it in the mid-show break, Benno Restaurant, which has hosted several of our interviews. Benno is Jonathan Benno's restaurant in New York City on 27th Street. There's also a casual restaurant affixed to it called Leonelli Taberna. And there is a focaccia and pasticceria out front, uh, actually facing 27th Street. You can't miss it if you're walking by. I recommend them to you. Also, the book is Rocco's Keto Comfort Food Diet. That is his new book. Easily found on the internet. There will be links to Rocco's website and to some of the book commerce sites where you can get that book on the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. Also, I didn't do this at the top of the show this week, but if you're still here at the end of the show listening, please, please, please tell a friend about us. Post on social media about us. Share this episode if you liked it on social media. Rate or review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. All of that does really help people find the show. We're actually having a very good year so far in 2020. We've been steadily increasing our listenership week after week, and we'd love to keep that going. So thanks to all of you who have been doing those things. We appreciate your support, and we will look forward to seeing you back here next week on Andrew Talks to Chefs.